words, do you think you have what it takes for God to use you to change this nation? I'm talking about a change so great that history books will record what happens. That's the kind of change I'm talking about. Do you, do you believe that God can use you to bring that kind of change in the nation? In 1878, there was a boy named Evan who was born in Wales. He was just a normal kid. At the age of 11, he went to work as a coal miner. 11 years old. He worked as a coal miner with his father for 12 years till he was 23. And then he became an apprentice blacksmith with his uncle. That was his training. Okay? At the age of 24, he became a preacher of the gospel and he became one of the leaders of the Welsh revival. His name is Evan Roberts. Between 1904 and 1905, two years, hundreds of thousands of people got saved in Wales. Virtually every church was overflowing with people. There were no seats available anywhere in any church. You could go to a church here, Walk down the road, go to another church, it would be queuing to get in the door. Church meetings went on for up to 10 hours as a general rule. No such thing as a one hour or one and a half hour meeting, 10 hours. The crime rate dropped so drastically that some prisons were totally empty and police had no work to do. Okay. Pubs and brothels were emptied and became places of worship. <laughs> Amazing, eh? The horses that worked in the mines stopped working because they couldn't recognize the commands their owners were giving because their owners had got saved and stopped swearing. So the horses just stood there. <laughs> Bibles were sold out right across the nation. You couldn't buy a Bible. There, was, there were none. All the bookstores emptied. The entire nation and the nations around it were changed and God used a young coal miner to bring that change about. Evan Roberts. So let me ask again. Do you think you have what it takes for God to use you to change this nation? Because God doesn't have favorites. We think he does. We think, oh, he had a special calling, and I don't. God isn't. We always preach this. God is not looking for our ability. He's looking for availability. Whoever's prepared to put their hand up, God will use. There is one thing, however, that will stop us being used by God in any shape or form. Only one thing. And I'll tell you what it is after we've looked at 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. So today's message, if you want a title, is Simple People and Supernatural Power. Simple People, Supernatural Power. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1 to 5. We're just going to read that together. Paul says, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words. An impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, 
I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. If someone asked me to tell, tell them, what is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Paul, the apostle? I'll probably say something like, he was a great apostle. He was, a, he was an unbelievable Christian. He was, a, he was a strong believer. I mean, almost a third of the New Testament is written by Paul. We read in the book of Acts that the churches in Philippi and Corinth and Thessalonica and other cities, churches were planted by Paul. And not easily, under extreme hardship. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned, he was abandoned by everyone, he says. I think except Luke. He said, all the others have deserted me, writing to Timothy. They've all abandoned me, except Luke. Did I mention he was imprisoned? <laughs> In fact, most of the New Testament is written from prison. Did you know that? It's not written from the mountaintops or on the green hills. Whoa, I'm under the inspiration of God. No, chained in a stinking, dark, terrible prison. prison with inmates dying around you. That's where this is written from. So if you began painting a picture of a man who is weak, who is timid, who is trembling, I'd say, you've got the wrong person. That's not Paul. Weak, timid, and trembling? A plain preacher? No ways. In my mind, Paul was a man of caliber, a man of strength, a man with a backbone of steel, a giant in the Christian faith. That's, that's the Paul I see. How could he have done the things he did if he was anything less than that? That's the question we ask. Weakness, timidity, trembling, plain preaching, surely that's not the Paul of the book of Acts. But the man himself said that's who he was. And in fact, more than that, he said that's who he chose to be. He didn't have to be that. He could have been the one that came and wowed with all his preaching. Just imagine, he could have just got up and shared story after story after story of, hey, this is what happened in this town, and this is how we established this church. He could have gone on, everybody would have been, wow, that's amazing, look at this guy. But he said he actually chose weakness. He chose plain preaching. He chose timidity, fear, trembling. I mean, coming here and I'm like, I'm nervous. That's Paul. Why would you choose that? Why would he choose to be weak, timid, trembling? If you preach a plain message, no one's going to share it on Facebook. Only share the good stuff on Facebook. Amen? No one shares just a normal message on Facebook. Let's be honest. We only share the power preacher, the one that wows the crowd. Those messages get shared. 
But the one who just gets up, preaches a plain message, never gets shared. Amen? How will the word of God spread across the world if it's preached in plainness? How? You've got to make it exciting, don't you? Why would Paul choose to do this? Well, let me, let me just uh, say one thing before we get into some points, is that Paul had the ability to impress people. He chose not to. He chose to be weak. But there was a time in Paul's life when he was supremely confident in his own ability. We read about it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 11. Philippians 3, verse 4 to 11. Paul says, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. He's saying, listen, you think you've got confidence in who you were? I've got even more reason to be confident. And then he starts listing all the confidence that he has. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old, exactly as the law says. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm from the right country. I'm from the right tribe. I come from a Christian country. I'm in a Christian church, a church that's impacting. I'm in the right tribe. That's what gives me confidence. Tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, which were a, uh, a group of, of teachers who were zealous for God, zealous for the law who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. So Paul's saying, not only was I a Pharisee, I was the Pharisee. I was the guy that was more zealous than anyone else. That's what gives me confidence. And sometimes we do that. We look around and we go, hey, I'm doing more than the next guy. That's what gives me confidence. That's why God's going to use me. Yeah, you prayed for an hour. I pray for three hours every day. <laughs> That's what God is going to look for. Paul says, he says, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. In other versions it says, I was blameless. And then he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage or dung, it says in other versions, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So let's just stop there and ask ourselves a question. How much garbage does it take to be used by God. How much are we trying to pile up. Before we say. Okay God. Now you can use me. Well I can't be used by God. Because I don't know enough of his word. Garbage. That's all it is. I can't be used by God. Because I'm not as passionate as Paul. Garbage. I can't be used by God. Because I'm single. Or I'm married. Or I have kids. Garbage. <laughs> Whatever your reason of why you can't be used by God, it's garbage. 
It's just a piling up of stuff that we think gives us confidence. We think it's going to get us to a place of where God can use us. And it's absolute garbage. You see, we focus on everything that Paul says is worthless. Pile them up as if they count for something. None of the stuff he says makes him right with God. He's talking about righteousness here. But it's also for us to go, hang on. We believe we can only be used by God when we're in a right place with God. And so we look to these things to give us confidence so that we go, God, I'm right with you. Now you can use me. In fact, Paul's confidence in his flesh resulted in him actually opposing God. Imagine that. All the stuff that he got confidence in, he ended up opposing God, killing Christians. And so Jesus knocked him down on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the church, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus said to him. And he suddenly realized, oh my word, All the stuff that I'm trying to do in my own strength, I'm actually opposing God with it. Back to us. We think we've got to be more in God before God can use us. In fact, the opposite is true. The more we minister out of ourselves, the more we oppose God. That's scary to think that. The more we try and be a better person, Within our own strength, the more we're opposing what God's trying to do. It's worldly thinking that's crept into the church. We've got this hierarchy in our minds. We say things like, he's a man of God. What's that mean? Does that mean I'm not a man of God? Frank's not a man of God? Clint's not a man of God? Oh, he's a man of God. What is that? Where is that in the Bible? It's hierarchical thinking. And what it does is, oh, I can't be used by God because I'm not a man of God. I'm not like that person. So God won't use me to change a nation. God will use the man of God to change the nation. It's garbage. We compare ourselves to other Christians and go, well, he does less than me, but she does more than me. So she's going to be used and not me. And I, I just let me just pull a few points out of one Corinthians in chapter two, verse one to five. Being used with supernatural power, simple people being used in a supernatural way. The first point is be humble. If you want to be used by God, this is the starting place. Be humble. Paul said, I didn't use lofty words. That's pride. I didn't try and come in and wow you with my words. He just preached plainly. And to do that, you need to be humble. Have you noticed how some Christians change their language and their demeanor when they want God to use them? We either talk quickly or we talk slowly. We either raise our voice or lower our voice. Why don't we just talk how we normally talk? (laughs) Because it's 
It's God we're addressing. We're not trying to do some formula that makes the power available. If my kids want something from me, they just come and talk to me normally. They don't come and say, Dad, I come before you now knowing that you give good gifts. Even as you gave my brother $10 last week, I remind you this day of your promise to give me $10. But that's how we pray when we talk to God. Oh, Lord, thank you for this day. Like, that's going to make it more the energy in the room or something. We've got to stir it up. He's a real person. And if I talk like this to Joe, I can talk like that to God. But yes, there is a revering of God. Amen? And there's nothing wrong with being passionate. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we're doing it because we think God's going to do something, we've got it wrong. It's not how we pray. It's not the words we use. It's the fact that we actually do pray. That's what makes the difference. (laughs) And when I talk to God, I definitely revere God. I'm never casual in God's presence. I'm never like, hey, God, how's it going today? Ah, it's great. eh? Anyway, how's about some of this stuff or whatever? I'm never like that with God because I don't ever believe we should be casual in the presence of God. He holds us together by the power of his word. He could destroy us in an instant. He could. He's sovereign. (laughs) So I always approach God with reverence. But I'm not trying to change myself to get him to do something. But be passionate. Okay? Be humble. And link to that, Paul says he doesn't use impressive wisdom. So not only does he say, I don't use lofty words, but I'm not trying to impress you. Are you trying to impress people? Are we worried about what people think of us? If we are, it's going to limit what God's going to do through us. If we're more worried about people than we are about God, it limits what he's going to do through us. Imagine the pressure Paul had in Corinth. All these great... Greek philosophers, impressing people with their lofty words and impressive wisdom. Just just picture that for a minute. Imagine God called you to go to Corinth. Here are all these incredible philosophers, Greek philosophers, and they are impressing people with their lofty wisdom and their lofty words. And Paul goes in and he says, I'm not going to go down their road. I'm just going to come with plain preaching. I'm going to put my trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is such a temptation in the church today in this area because we talk about being relevant. We, we, and we sometimes walk a road where we are so uh, keen on being relevant that we've compromised on the truth. Was Paul relevant in this culture? Yes, he was. But he wasn't relevant because he spoke 
with lofty words. And he wasn't relevant because he impressed people like the Greek philosophers did. He was relevant because he preached nothing but Jesus and him crucified. He preached the gospel. The gospel is always relevant. Always. doesn't matter what culture we're in. can be under a tree. can be in the biggest, fanciest church building ever. The gospel is always relevant. It's relevant to the intellectual. It's relevant to the illiterate. It's relevant in any country in the world. And it's relevant in a thousand years' time. It was relevant 2,000 years ago. The gospel is always relevant. And let me just go through it quickly. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned and is unable to save themselves. That's the starting point. Every single person here has sinned and is unable to save themselves. Every person everywhere in the world has sinned and is unable to save themselves. And because of that, everyone is destined to fail God's judgment of them. Everyone is going to stand before God and fail judgment. Okay? Gone quiet. Everyone, because of sin, is destined to spend an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. Everyone. That's what the Bible teaches. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus. Born into this world through the Virgin Mary. Why? Because his father wasn't Joseph. His father was our heavenly father. He was born sinless. He was born fully human. And he lived a sinless life even though he was tempted in every way. You think you've been tempted? In many ways, Jesus was tempted in all those ways, plus every single one of us here. Whatever temptations we faced, Jesus was tempted in those ways. Male and female, doesn't matter. Oh, Jesus was a male. He doesn't know what it's like to be a, a lady. He was tempted in every way. Okay? Don't know how that works. I just know it's what the Bible says. Okay? He performed miracles. He healed countless people and he never charged a single cent for any of it. <laughs> How different is that to the church today? Eh? And then he chose to obey his father and go to the cross. And on that cross, all the sin of mankind was put on innocent Jesus. All of it. As if he'd done it. From the very worst sins, murder, everything you can think of that's even worse, put on Jesus as if he'd done it to the very least of the sins. Things we would consider to be just trivial. It was all put on Jesus. And he did it in obedience to his heavenly Father. And then... On that cross, he died in our place. Paid the price for all of that sin. For thousands of years, the Jews had been sacrificing lambs every Passover. Every year, take an innocent lamb, done nothing wrong, sacrificed it, put the blood on their doorposts. Every year. Why? 
to remember in Egypt the day when they did that and the angel of death passed over their home, didn't kill anybody, saved them. That, the blood of that lamb saved that family. And here, the lamb of God crucified on the cross. The final one, no more sacrifices needed so that death would pass over anyone who believes that we can receive his life. Jesus dying for the sins of all mankind. And here's the thing. On the cross, he actually died. He was dead. Not like he just went to sleep or something. He died. God died. Think about it. God died. I mean, it's incredible. The sun stopped shining. The earth shook. Hundreds of dead people rose from the grave when it happened. Rocks split open. The Roman soldier standing there said, Surely this is the Son of God. I mean, he was like, Whoa, this has never happened. In all the hundreds of people that I've been a witness to, seeing get crucified, when that guy died, stuff happened. Surely he's the Son of God. And then they put God's dead body in a borrowed tomb. See, we just go, oh, they put Jesus' body, God's dead body, in a tomb, lifeless. He only needed a borrowed tomb because he wasn't going to use it for too long. Amen? (laughs) On the third day, the same spirit that's in you rose Jesus from the dead. The exact same spirit that's in us raised Jesus from the dead. That lifeless body came back to life again. How do we know that? Because when the disciples ran in, they saw the grave clothes. And they weren't just all piled up in a mess. They were folded. (laughs) So there's Jesus got raised from the dead, took all the grave clothes off, folded them up, and then walked out. Because the stone had been rolled away. (laughs) See, a ghost doesn't fold clothes. Amen? A ghost might be able to walk through a wall. Why do you think the stone needed to be rolled away? (laughs) Anyway. I want to get sidetracked here. But then he appeared to hundreds of people, including the disciples, and he gave them instructions to carry on the work because he was returning to the right hand of the Father. And he ascended on a cloud into heaven. The disciples saw him rise up into heaven and disappear. And for the last 2,000 years, he's been ministering as our heavenly high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews says, praying for you and I without ceasing. Every day, every moment, he's ministering. He's the most faithful high priest that the world has ever experienced. Never for a single moment does Jesus not pray for you and pray for me. Isn't that wonderful? This is the gospel. Jesus has made the way open for the Father. In him, we can receive forgiveness of sins. In him, we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In him, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, which we could never do before. It's knowing Jesus that saves us. One day, all of us are going to stand before God and be judged. We're all going to stand there before the the throne of God and be judged. Everyone, everyone in this room and everyone out there. But for some of us, 
Jesus is going to say, I know that guy and he knows me. Come and enter my rest. And other people are going to be, Jesus, we did all this in your name. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. We raised the dead. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. Surely we're in. Didn't know you. It's knowing Jesus. It's not following a set of doctrines. Oh, the Bible says this, so I do a tick. The Bible says that, so I do a tick. Do you know Jesus? That's what gets you in. (laughs) That's the gospel. And everything I've said here can be backed up with scripture. But we haven't got time to do that. It'll take way too long. But anything you add or take away or change makes it an illegitimate gospel. What about good people that aren't Christians? It's not the gospel. What about other religions? It's not the gospel. What about the lake of fire not being real? It's not the gospel. Well, I just can't believe God would ever send people there for all eternity. It's the gospel. I can't believe people would choose to go there when God's given them a far better option. What about the same gods but different names? It's not the gospel. There's only one name by which men can be saved. It's not Allah. It's not Buddha. It's not Krishna. It's not anyone else. It's only the name of Jesus. Only him. Be humble. Wonderful thing about humility is that humility is something that all of us can walk in because the Bible says humble yourselves. That means all of us can humble ourselves. It doesn't just say, hey, those of you that are really on fire for God, you humble yourselves. And those of you that are struggling, well, you'll just have to pray or something. (laughs) The Bible just says, humble yourselves. That's something we can all do. Paul says, I came to you in weakness, timidity and trembling. You see, that's humility. Not I can do this. Not God saying, well, dig deep. Dig deep within yourself and make it happen. No. God just says, just just surrender. Come in weakness. It's okay. I'm going to use you. Humble person has no confidence in their flesh. In fact, when you follow Jesus, Jesus says, this is how you follow me. You pick up your cross daily. What do you do with a, what is a cross for? It's an instrument of death. It's I pick up my cross. I put myself to death. I say, not my will be done, yours be done. And then I live my day. And then the next day I get up and I pick up my cross again. And I say, not my will be done, yours be done. (laughs) That's how we follow Jesus. We do that and God will use us. The second point, and I'll probably just get to this, is Paul focused on Jesus. If we keep our focus on Jesus, we'll be used by God. Paul said he decided to forget everything except Jesus Christ. It's not how we pray. It's not how we preach. It boils down to do we know Jesus? You're praying to Jesus. That's good. But do you know him that you're praying to? You're preaching about Jesus. That's good. But do you know who you're preaching about? (laughs) Or is it just a whole bunch of theory? See, we we can study this book. In fact, we can spend time with God in order to be used in ministry. And have no relationship with him. You can. 
You can go to the word, you can pray, and you can, you can get stuff out of here that I can share all without knowing God. But God wants us to know him. Jesus wants us to know him. That's what makes the difference. One of the devil's tactics that I believe he's using today is distraction. There's so many things in our lives that distract us from spending time with God. Just think about your week. It's just been. Think about your morning. Were you able to spend time with God? Or were you distracted by many other things? You and I have the most wonderful privilege in all the world. The opportunity to actually know God. I mean, there's nothing better than that. It's such an opportunity to, to know God. I don't mean know about God. I mean know Him. Distraction. Even the good distracts us from the best. Too many Marthas doing what's good, running around organizing food in the background, but missing out on doing what's best, like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being with the Lord. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. I'm going to end with this. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. Notice she was distracted by the big dinner. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it. Hmm. And it will not be taken away from her. The good was distracting Martha from the best. A little bit later in John chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. John 12, verse 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead, and a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Once again, Martha served. And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. When Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. What a waste. Imagine someone did that. One year's salary you spend on perfume only to pour it out on someone else and fill the room with a fragrance. And he says it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this 
in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This was one week before Jesus was going to die. Who's the only person in that room who knew that was going to happen? Mary. Not even the disciples knew it at that time. Mary was the only person that knew Jesus was going to die. So she took a year's worth of salary, bought expensive, the most expensive perfume she could get, and poured it out as an offering of worship. I mean, incredible. What an offering of worship. But that kind of worship doesn't come from being good and doesn't come from being busy serving God. It comes from spending time with Jesus. She sat at his feet and was listening, paying attention to what he was saying. And she responded out of that in probably the most extravagant act of worship we read in the Bible. And it's recorded for all eternity. Wow. There's a lady being used by God in such a mighty way that what she did in that one act has been preserved for all eternity in the word of God. Why? Because she wasn't distracted by the good. She was enamored by the best. She was totally in love with Jesus. And now I'm not saying, hey, everybody stop serving and just come to the front. We're going to just worship. We need both. We do. The chairs don't just magically appear on their own in rows. (laughs) Jesus doesn't put the chairs out, okay? (laughs) But we need both. We, We can't be so distracted by serving God that we never spend time at the feet of Jesus because it's about knowing Him. It's about knowing Him. You can't get to know someone unless you spend time with them. (laughs) Amen? Simple people, supernatural power. The last thing I just want to say, I won't go into it, but it's that when we are spending time at the feet of Jesus and we hear Him speak, obey. Just obey Him. I said earlier, there's only one thing that will stop us being used by God. It's not how much you pray and fast. It's not how much money you give. It's not how much time you even spend with God. It's not how much of the Bible you know. It's not how much faith you have. Here it is. The one thing that will stop us being used by God, disobedience. It will stop us dead in our tracks. When God says, I want you to do this, and we go, no. That's it. We won't be used by God. We could have spent 10 hours at the feet of, of, of Jesus. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that act of worship of Mary was Jesus saying, I'd like you to do this for me. Imagine she said, no, nah, it's too expensive. Can't do that. What will other people think? What are your disciples going to think? Going to give me a hard time. What's Mary going to think? Not only am I not helping her in the kitchen, now I'm blowing all our money on a box of perfume. <laughs> But she was willing. She was obedient. She was used by God. If you refuse to obey God, you'll not be used by God. Even Jesus obeyed. He said, I haven't come to do my own thing. I've come to do the will of my Father. The words I speak, they're not my words. They're my Father's words. He laid everything down. And he said, I'm going to be obedient to the point of death. That's why he was used so mightily. You don't obey God. You don't obey Jesus. 
more than you obey his word. You don't. You don't love Jesus more than you love his word. You don't honor Jesus more than you honor his word. Because I can't say, I love Jen, but I don't listen to anything she says. (laughs) Sometimes I don't. (laughs) Thanks, babe. Thanks, babe. That's humbling. (laughs) But we can't say that. (laughs) It's whatever God says in his word, we obey. Whatever he says to us when we're sitting at his feet, we obey. And then God's going to use us. Just like little Evan Roberts. He was 11 years old. He went to the coal mines. But it was when he was about 14 he got saved. And he prayed for 11 years for revival in Wales. 11 years. Perseverance. Because he heard a story about revival in another nation. And he said, God, there's only one thing that's going to save this nation of ours. There's only one thing they need. It's not, not a new government. It's not a new this, that, or new policies, or better this, or better schools, or whatever. It's revival that only God can bring. Turn the hearts of men and women back to himself. Amen. Let's just stand. We're going to-